Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Health Connect South Radio. Brought to you by Sherwick Media, your health and wellness content specialist. Health Connect South is to serve the health community as a sustainable platform for regional health collaborations. Through our collective work, we seek to broadly define and advance the Southeast role in the future of health. Serving as a gateway between health industry silos, we seek to provide unique and meaningful partnership opportunities in health. We are pleased to share this information and these experts with you as part of our mission. Want to be part of the discussion? Join in, tweet questions and comments at HealthCon Radio. Good morning, everyone. It's C.W. Hall, your host here on Health Connect South Radio, our 20th episode already. Gosh, you're kidding me. Can't believe it. Yeah, I can't either. We've been on the air for a little bit now. That was Diana Keogh of Sherwick Media Group. We're pleased to have them as a partner of the show, helping make this program available to you. Every week we're bringing you health experts from around the Atlanta area who are having an impact on the overall health of our population from a variety of different directions. Um, some of it's research, some of it's uh, budding companies that are coming out with uh, products and solutions that are designed to uh, help us be a little bit more healthy. Uh, today we're going to be talking to experts that face the senior care uh, aspect of our population and uh, obviously uh, the statistics are pretty impressive uh, around that group of people. I, I was looking at some um, some statistics about uh, the aging population of America and the last one I saw was a 2009 uh, stat that showed almost 13%, 12.9% of the population uh, over 65 years old and it's going to be obviously close to one in five people here by 2030 so clearly a significant group of uh, our folks are aging uh, well into their later years now, living longer, um, dealing with things like dementia, um, some frailty with regards to things like fractures or, or uh, predisposition to falls, different things like that that kind of increase the acuity of their care and uh, they need access to some resources, whether it's in the home or whether it's in a facility that could provide some uh, oversight and, and assistance with their daily living. Um, we've got a little bit of everything uh, with that uh, with our experts today. So we'll just go around the room here and introduce everybody to you. We've got Chris Foster. He's a certified senior advisor and gerontologist with Live Home. Thanks for joining us. Hey, CW. Thank you. And we've got uh, Blaine Workentine of Vimpty. Didn't think he was going to make it. He flew in this morning to be here on the show. Thanks, CW. At least that's why we're saying you're, you're here in Atlanta today. <laughs> <laughs> and then we've got Maria DeLaGuardia of Assisting Li Assisted Living Locators. So thanks for taking some time today. Thank you. And Chris, I want to start with you. Um, and I know that the company has been around a little while. And, and uh, I wanted to kind of get to know... How did you get yourself into the space facing um, the, the, the senior population as where you wanted to be? Well, I'm myself a tail end of the baby boomer, so I'm dealing with these issues with my parents. As a matter of fact, we had to go through uh, home care services and hospice and things along those lines with my father and then repeat that again with my wife's grandmother. So uh, a lot of people in my age group are dealing with these. I was so moved by the people we interacted with during that process, I thought I would redirect my career to something more purpose-driven and help other seniors along the way. And so just basically from your education forward, you've been facing the space. Yeah, absolutely. We, we service uh, about 540 families a year in the metro Atlanta area, and we see all different types of scenarios of families who want to age in place, whether that's in their own home or in a, an assisted living community or an independent living community. Wherever they're at, we can assist with that. And so can you take us through a little bit of you know the the evolution. How did it how did it all come together? This is what we're going to do, and these are the services that we're going to provide, and then we'll kind of get down into exactly what you're doing for those folks. Well, it all starts in the initial assessment of the senior and talking with the family. So we employ uh, certified care managers who are RNs. Uh, we go out, we meet with the family, we make sure we understand all the clinical issues going on with that senior that we're going to be assisting. We make sure the environment's in place for that senior to age properly where they currently are. Uh, if not, we'll put together a whole care plan for that family and kind of help them navigate that aging process to make sure everything's in place for them. And when it comes to trying to decide home or someplace that's not home, whether it's an assisted living or a nursing type facility, how do you kind of work through that process to, to make the best choice? Well, sometimes that's an easy decision if uh, the senior is in a, uh, a place that's 
become to appear more like a hoarding situation. We want to remove them from there. Uh, we still see seniors in these old split level 60 style homes where there's steps in the kitchen, steps into the laundry room, steps into the living room. Uh, probably not the best place because of the fall risk. Uh, but really the seniors, by the time they turn 65, wherever they live, that's typically the place they want to live out their years. Right. And we, we're, we want to make that possible for them. I think it's impressive that you're utilizing registered nurses versus some of the other options out there. I know that uh, a lot of entities, particularly in the home care space, tend to use like practical nursing. Not to say that they're less than per se, but just it's just that much more training and education uh, along the way to to get them to where they're working clinically. Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of states uh, don't address that issue in the licensure or they're not licensed states at all but the state of georgia i give them credit they require an rn to do the initial assessment of a senior when they're going to come on service so we perfectly understand the clinical side and then you know we can use lpns for supervisory visits or other care managers uh, who may be social workers for other aspects of the care what's interesting about what um chris does is i mean i get phone calls or emails from at, at least twice a month from friends that are like, I, you know, I've, my mom is failing. Mm -hmm. And typically, they don't live down the street. So right. it's, it's basically they live in Florida, or they right. live in South Carolina, or they live, you know, somewhere in northern Georgia. And, um, you know, how, how do you your organization kind of help with that when you have a, a person in, in our age group that basically has a parent that lives in another state? Well, we see quite often those adult children wanting to move their parent closer to, to where they live or in their home themselves. So we can assist them with that transfer. We'll fly down to Houston, let's say, get on, help the senior get on the plane, get them here, get them settled into a new place. Um, a lot of our adult children who are the power of attorneys that have parents living here, we do a lot of communication with them remotely. So this long distance caregiving is a very normal part of our society these days because it's such a transient society so each family we you know we got to figure out what's going to work best for them and a lot of times uh, we got busy executives who have busy careers and we're going to recommend they probably bring mom and dad closer to them yeah and it's not something that you actually think about until your your dad takes that first fall yeah right and that's what i was going to ask is what are the typical things there's got to be kind of a set of things i always dementia being one um kind of being frail and prone to falls as diana was saying what are the things that typically bring somebody to say hey man we need to link up with you well so 95 percent of our clients come to us after a crisis has occurred so they're you're currently in a hospital or a rehab center and the medical professionals are saying they cannot go home without assistance so that's a big part of it others have been seeing a uh, steady decline in the cognitive abilities of the parents they're getting lost when they're driving to the store which they've been to a million times right. uh, they keep asking the same questions hearing the same stories and that's alarming for them and you know or they're noticing they're not taking their medications and then you get a lot of problems with that as well so there's subtle signs along the way and people stay in denial for a long time uh, the seniors are fighting it because they don't want to lose that sense of independence they don't want to be a burden on adult children so I understand that as well but at some point there has to be a family meeting and says listen we're, we fear for your your safety when we were young and we couldn't care for ourselves you were there well, the roles are reversed here. It's now for our time to care for you. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give to the family members that have an elderly parent or a loved one um, that's kind of in that, they're in that trend? I think we're starting to notice some things. The, the crisis hasn't occurred yet. Do you have any kind of services or, or things that you provide in terms of just recommendations uh, as part of what you do that would help that family maybe plan so that when the crisis actually comes and we say oh geez we actually now have to probably take some more aggressive action it's not such a, i can only imagine when it was yesterday mom was living alone in missouri and now you're telling me that we she can't live alone without assistance in in the home and i'm in georgia so what do i do I, there's got to be some things that we can do kind of leading up to that might help that yeah less traumatic and for some reason a lot of families have real big troubles with this but start the conversation if you start seeing those declines you got to have that conversation with mom and dad and say listen you know you know you're getting older you know everyone knows when they're getting older 
let, let's decide right now what you're going to want as you get to a point where you can't care for yourself. And we have a guest on the show here today that will talk a little bit about that as well. But it's really starting with have an open, honest conversation. Let's make sure we understand mom and dad's wishes. Uh, we get it in paper. We identify resources prior to the crisis because I'm telling you, the stress these people face post-crisis or during a crisis is overwhelming. And a lot of times we're in these assessments or these family meetings and it's just tears and tears. And it's, you know, there is a road map to getting back to where they were. We just have to meet with them, get everyone on the same page. And especially in this society too, we got a lot of uh, late in life remarriages. We got kids with opposing uh, desires on right. what they want to do with resources and so on. So it's very important while the parents can and able, they need to communicate their wishes. The, the drama you must experience on a daily basis is mind-blowing. Yes, I'm almost going back to school to get my social worker's degree <laughs> at this point. But uh, but, but it, it's nice once we meet with the family and we get everyone on that same page to see that stress melt away, so to speak. Um, some families are just too dysfunctional and we'll never get to where we need to be on that. Um, but for the most part, uh, we can get everyone on the same page. Having gone through this scenario with both of my parents at two different times, um, we didn't. There weren't organizations like this that existed back in the '90s, and so you know, just what a blessing that you know. And there's another guest that we're going to be speaking to that both the organizations just you know are really hitting the mark for what happens when you have a crisis with a, an ailing parent. Clearly, a growth market, of course. Yeah, absolutely, and I guess that, I guess that's a positive thing because no one really wants to end up in a nursing home. I, right. To this day, I've never been into a nursing home where I walked out and said, "Hey, that felt kind of nice." Yeah, this is why seriously. I'm yeah. So, and there's no need today that you should ever end up into a nursing home. All the services that can be delivered in a nursing home can be delivered into a private home these days. So, you just need to know what's available, where those resources are in your communities, and get that plan in place. That's one of the questions I was going to ask ask is when the parent understandably wants to live out their days in their home or in a home with you, um, talk about that as far as the resources that are available. How does it compare with regards to cost uh, for nursing home living versus or assisted living, for example, versus being in my home, having the clinical and assistance resources available to me in my home versus those types of places? Well, so... Great example. So my father, we would have had to use a front end loader to get him out of the house. There's no way he was going to leave his home. Um, so all the services were there. I mean, you can get hospital beds sent there, oxygen sent there, uh, hospice workers. Um, anything you can imagine can be set up in a home environment. And it's actually a lot cheaper, not only on you personally, but also on the government, to do all these things in the home. Okay. I mean... A, there's a shortage of nursing home beds in the state of Georgia and in other states as well. They're just Medicare, Medicaid does not want to necessarily push people to that avenue uh, because of the cost associated with it. So, um, you know, uh, in a home environment, there might be some more private pay issues that you want to add on to it, but Medicare will pay for a lot of those services. And what about the the, t the different types of insurance that are out there, like long-term insurance, things like that? Do those come into play and, and provide some reimbursement as, as part of that? Yeah, and actually in my business. So what Live Home provides is the uh, um, non-medical assistance for the most part. So okay. we're helping with the bathing and the dressing and the meals and the transferring and the ambulating. And, you know, everything you and I do every morning, we wake up, we get dressed, shower, we go to work and so on. You get frail at some point, you can't do that, and you need assistance. So my world is all private pay. So uh, long-term long care insurance would pay for a service like mine. Other than that, it's private pay. Okay, now if you need home health, like occupational therapy, physical therapy, uh, things along those lines, home health pays for that. If you're diabetic, you need shots, things like that, home health, that's covered by Medicare. Uh, and then if you're a low-income senior, Medicaid will pay for a lot of those services as well. So can you, uh, yeah, obviously it's a spectrum, and, and so costs associated with the level of care you're going to provide are going to go up the more acute it is. But can you give kind of an idea of what someone needs to kind of, if particularly if we're trying to do some planning, that what, what roughly would, it, uh, as a band, would it cost me to have 
Care Lakes is provided in my in my home for my mom. So on a national level, you you can find a quality agency anywhere between seventeen and twenty eight dollars an hour, depending on where you live in the country. Uh, the metro Atlanta area, we're around twenty dollars an hour for those services. Um, for private pay LPNs, which are nurses, you're looking around thirty five to forty dollars an hour. Uh, but, you know, most seniors who have planned and they see this coming on and they, they start off gradually, maybe a few hours a day, a couple of days right. a week. And then as their acuity level increases, we have to increase those hours. Uh, and there's also what we call live-in, where we actually place a caregiver in the home and they actually sleep there. And that can be a little bit more cost effective. I see. And what alternatives are there for those seniors and those people of my generation who have not planned ahead? Well, you'll end up in my office crying one day <laughs> um, uh, because you'll be experienced. Your parents might have had a fall and was rushed to the hospital and has a new hip. And uh, the, the doctor will tell you, you know, she's going to need help when she gets home and we can't release her until uh, she has that in place. So and sometimes the adult children step in. I mean, 85 percent of the caregiving is uh, given by family members. Um, but there's a lot of burnout like uh, with family caregivers. Matter of fact, most people end up in a nursing home because of caregiver burnout, not because they're ready for the nursing home. It's just the caregiver is just too exhausted. Mm -hmm. We actually had two really sad cases last year, and we probably see this every year, where we meet with a family, and it's a husband and father type deal, a husband and wife. Uh, the husband is the one who's the healthy one, and the wife has dementia, and he will adamantly resist having us come into service Ma, his wife he goes no we've been married 60 years she's my responsibility i'm going to take care of her but we're seeing that caregiving burden effect on his health and we had two gentlemen pass last year because they were unwilling to uh, get the help in and now we're servicing the spouse who who needed the care to begin and who's with alone right yeah so but if they would accept the health they probably would still be here today it is a rather large figure, about $454 billion is really substituted by caregiver activities. So if that was absorbed by the medical system, you'd expect another another bump in how much we're spending for health care. Uh, the average American family will spend, or uh, American as they uh, go through this time period, will spend anywhere from, on the low side, 10000 uh, minimum, uh, but on the high side, more like 110. So uh, a long-term uh, care facility for a year in the, on the average in the United States is $89,000. So there's quite a big figure yeah. to plan for. And most families don't have these types of resources. About 17% of all families go through some form of family bankruptcy. Yeah. Um, and 40% will extinguish all of their financial wealth during this period of time. Yeah, significant. I can imagine trying to plan for your own retirement, much less for picking up somewhere between 80 and a hundred thousand dollars of outlay to take care of your parents that's that's yeah. and pretty I've, significant i've taken it out asking my grown children it's like as long as you can take care of me in my old age i'm fine with whatever you end up doing but i'm just kidding yeah. but it is yeah. i mean it's a substantial outlay and again it's like how do you how do you plan for that it's almost like planning for a college education what you think is enough ends up to never be enough i think i think we're going to see some really creative models come about um particularly because the average American gets really poor quality during this time period yeah. and you know, the cost actually to Medicare for multiple hospital missions and these kind of things adds up really quickly when about, you know, 28% of our population will die in an, an acute care center. 17% um, of us will die in a ICU at $10,000 a day. These types of costs can be redirected to the home and can do amazing things if they've, uh, if, if they've been redirected in, in creative ways. I think the opportunity really looks well towards the value-based reimbursement models. And uh, you can really look at um, substituting all of that acute care for uh, less acute and more um, proactive care at home. I was wondering about that, if there's some studies out there that are showing how I do if I'm living those days, as you're talking about, in my familiar environment, whether it's in my own home or maybe with my loved ones, versus getting into an outside, either assisted or nursing type facility, a subacute uh, place for me to live. Go ahead, Maria. Yeah. So um, in Georgia, <laughs> we have other types of facilities that we haven't talked about, which are 
um, the small personal care home. And that is like in a residential setting. So it's usually a ranch style home. Um, many of them are owned by registered nurses. They run these um, or occupational therapists, um, social workers. Um, and so it's very important to know what all the options are, not just this option like the nursing home um, or home care or the large facilities that you drive by. And the families that we serve, they don't know about all the options. And that's what assisted living locators does. We try to educate. These are all your options. And we work with all the different options. And we will guide you through the different channels. Um, so it's important to know that there are small homes, big homes, medium size, dementia care specifically, others that are more independent, there's senior independent living, and it's just important to know. So where do you actually come in compared to where Chris comes in? Where do you come into the family crisis? A lot of times they find Chris or they find me or they find a social worker and the social worker educates them. So it just depends on you know, where the family hears about us. So generally everything's through referrals. Most of our referrals are now from past families. That generally that's where we get our referrals from or a doctor, specific doctors, sub-specific um, rehabs, specific hospitals. So basically they find us, I think that Chris and I do similar work in the initial upfront assessment and intake he obviously specifically focuses on the home care. And he is very true and very right that many times people do end up in these large facilities, assisted livings, and the facilities are not as well equipped to take care of someone who's very frail. And so they do need live home services to come in and supplement what they're offering. So sometimes families think that, oh, if I go to this big facility, it's only $3,500 a month, including my care. But what happens is that their, the, the person's care keeps increasing and increasing, and finally the facility says, if your mom wants to stay here, your dad, you're going to have to supplement at least with night care because we only have you know two CNAs working the floor, and your mom gets up all night, and we're afraid she's going to fall. So that's an additional cost that families need to consider. So how did you get into this line of work? Well... I got to a point in my life where I realized I wasn't really, I was in sales and doing all these great fun things and I wasn't contributing. I had a young child and I wanted to be more local and contribute more locally in my, where I live. I'm from Georgia and one of my best friends, she started assisted living locators in Arizona. She's a registered nurse. We grew up in Savannah and she kept saying, I want to bring it to Georgia. I want to bring it to Georgia. And I said, okay, let me research. And so I'm a big researcher. So <laughs> I studied the whole market. I went to all these senior networking groups, and I really liked the people I met. And I certainly thought it was much better than my telecom people I worked with. <laughs> so I said, okay, I'm going to give it a try. And so I invested in the company. And um, so I started Assisted Living Locators here in 2009. Um, we sold another. We're now a franchise company. We sold another franchise in 2010 for North Georgia. And now we're in about, I think, 20 states and probably uh, 40, 30 or 40 franchises. So we've expanded a lot, in particular in the last two years. So, And are you are all the franchises networked then? So if someone yes. is calling from Florida that has a parent in Philadelphia, for yes. example. Yes, we're all networked and we're all business owners. So we all have a very strong vested interest in being successful at what we do. It's not like being an employee of a company and then saying, oh, I messed up. I'm going to go do something else. We can't do that, and we don't want to do that. So we do everything that's in the best interest of the families we serve, whether or not it is a profitable situation. Sometimes we just have to say, you know what, this is what you need to do, and we're not going to get paid, and we accept that. you know. And so how do you get paid? We get paid. We have two services, but 95% of our services are referral basis. So... Uh, we, we work with all the large facilities in, in Atlanta, in Metro Atlanta, and a lot of the small homes. We go and visit every home personally and get to know those owners. Sometimes they don't meet our standards, so they don't join our network. We don't, you know, accept them into our network. But because we provide a very hands-on process with our families, we tour every facility with them if they want us to when we're narrowing down the options based on the assessment that we get to know what's going on in each community, the large, the small, and the medium. So we provide a very tailored 
um, you know, view of what's what's available to them. So instead of saying there's 2,000 options for you in Georgia, we can narrow it down to manageable probably five. I see. You know, it is interesting that um, there's, you know, as far as technology goes, is there anything that actually can help me, you know, app app wise to actually work through this process? I'm not familiar with an app. I know we have an online assessment tool on our website that allows a family to who's in denial, which Chris mentioned, many of them are in denial. And basically, it covers 10 areas, including, the, you know, the, all of what's called the activities of daily living and what's called the, um, the IADLs, which is like basically what they're capable of doing. Can they call a physician? Can they um, drive themselves to a, a, an appointment? Or can they call for a taxi and do it? So all those things come into play, and it's 10 areas. And, you know, the answers are between 1, 2, and 3 for each. So the highest score is 30, which means not good that that person really needs assistance. And then the lowest score obviously is 10, which would be us in this room that we don't need assistance. We were able to do everything for ourselves. But as the person goes through that process and they realize mom is a 20, even though I think she's independent or dad is, then they all of a sudden realize and it just allows them to have like a check. And you can get the elder to do it too. So a lot of our social workers use that tool because we've printed it out for them in paper form to make it easy for them to share with families um, on that. So that's one online assessment tool that I'm aware of, but I'm sure there's others that... Is that free, Maria? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's really um, powerful tools now in healthcare. Um, they're not really delivered to the user very often. That's the problem, but they're powerful tools. I mean, one that I know of is uh, a lady who's created a thing called Owned Outcomes. And she's evaluated um, 50.4 million or billion claims um, and put it into an analytics package. And she's able to um, give hospital systems predictive um, understanding of the best place for post-acute. It's quite a good tool, um, but it's, you know, it's, it's paid for by hospital systems. It's not really meant to be used at the customer level at the moment. But I think there's there's going to be, uh, you know, an oncoming um, environment where these tools do become more consumer-directed. Um, and I think it would be interesting to actually work with you to see how, how that could help you. I mean, I think there's mm -hmm. certainly an opportunity to, to add some transparency to this. In a real-world environment, though, uh, when the family finds themselves in a situation they're needing help, you know, it's just you guys call people you trust that have dealt with this with their own parents yeah. and start getting referrals, and you just got to start networking because there's some great companies, some great services out there, but most people, since they've never been in the market for this, have no clue where to turn. So if you can find a trusted advisor, whether it's a care manager or a certified senior advisor or someone like anyone sitting at this table who live and breathe this industry all the time, and we can direct, I mean, it takes us, you know, minutes to really sum up a situation, let them know where they need to call and who they need to employ. Um, you just got to find someone who's trusted, who's been through it to help you through it, to get you started anyways. We've been talking with experts in the topic of senior care. Chris Foster of Live Home, Maria De La Guardia of Assisted Living Locators, and Blaine Warkentine of VEMT, learning a lot about uh, the resources that are available for families that are in need of trying to find some sort of resources, whether it's a, a living-type arrangement um, in an assisted living, nursing homes, if, if that's the way you have to go, but also learning that there's some excellent opportunities for a family to keep their parents in their own home, in many cases, uh, if not to be able to get some support that would allow them to bring their parent into their um, the home with them and still have some support that would uh, you know be able to make life a little bit easier. Um, and, and Maria, talk about um, how it works for you. you. You were mentioning the fact that for me as a as a family member looking for help, it's free for me. And the the, the nursing facilities and the assisted living facilities having a, a relationship with you. Talk about that side of things. Okay. How much are you able to influence? Um, if at all, uh, say how nursing facilities and assisted living facilities are doing things. Are you able to identify, hey, these are some things that we see that might make you more appealing and, and a, a better place that we could more heartily right. recommend since you're kind of a collecting point for people right. looking for this service. So obviously you're an important resource for them. Exactly. So um, in terms of the nursing home side, 
we don't really do a lot of placement from a long-term care perspective in the nursing home um, because it's majorly paid by Medicaid. So okay. usually when people have run out of funds um, or they have such acute needs, um, I know Chris talked about, you know, they can deal with diabetics and all of this, but if somebody's on a ventilator, um, has sliding, you know, brittle diabetic and so many other things, sometimes they need to be in the nursing home. And so in those cases, that might be appropriate, but it's very few and far in between. Um, you'll find um, that most people don't need to be in a nursing home. It's very rare. And the ones that do either, like you said, caregiver burnout, and so the person, they don't have another you know, choice because they don't have the resources um, to put them into a private pay facility. Um, so nursing home is sort of a unique bird, and particularly in Georgia, I mean, there's just not enough beds. And so I would spend my whole day trying to find a bed for somebody, and, you know, my, it might take me three or four weeks. Um, in fact, some of the elder care attorneys um, who do life planning, they actually do have social workers on their staff that their job is to find those long-term beds um, for their, res their patients who need, I mean, their, their clients who need that. Um, so we focus on assisted living, in senior independent living, the personal care home, and memory care. And it is all private pay that we work with. I see. But what I will say is that because we've been doing this for so many years, we know also what those resources are for the Medicaid. So I would say out of, you know, five calls, three are Medicaid ones, and we do help every family the best way we can. We have lots of resources. We even get phone calls from homeless people. We now have a listing of every homeless shelter in Metro Atlanta Okay. that we can at least help that person, and we help the churches. You know, churches will call us and say, oh, my gosh, we have this situation. So we are able to be a resource, you know, not just for the private pay um, clients. And I think that makes us very unique. I don't think um, everyone can do that. They don't have the, the team of people that wants to provide that level of help in our community. Um, so I did mention that there was another, we do have a private, I mean, a, uh, a fee-based service. And that's typically for that family who has gone out and been on the internet and the internet is like this monster that sucks them in <laughs> yeah. and shares all their contact information with yeah, everybody and, and their brother. Deluged with calls. Right. They get deluged with calls. They're overwhelmed. But unfortunately, at that point, those facilities have either, I'm not going to say the names, but suchandsuch.com or such and such whatever in their system as the referral source. And so we get paid because we're the first one there. And when we're not, then, you know, we can't get reimbursed. And our advisors work very hard to get, re, you know, to get a, a, a collection of the, the fee, the, the placement fee. So in those cases, if the families really, really wants our expert advice, then we will sit down with them for about two hours for $250 and go through everything that they've gotten from every source, everything they visited, and assess their loved one's situation, looking at what the care needs are, what their budget is, what the location is, and any preferences they have from having a pet, a religious preference, whatever it might be, that we take all that into consideration, and then the 20 places they've looked at, we get rid of, you know, 15 of them, and we're left with five, and then we say, well, how come, you know, you didn't look at this one and this one? And well, they didn't give us that information. Well, because these big machines, these big companies, they try to get contracts with all these small facilities a lot of the facilities say, I don't want to work with them because they're so big. And so they don't have a contract, so they don't get referred to that facility. And so we'll say, well, I think you should also go look at these two. And nine times out of ten, the two that they didn't even know about, one of them might be the best place for their loved one. I see. Do you have some recommendations on what are the stumbling blocks? Where do I trip up? in this process? What are the things that uh, somebody should really, questions I should really ask or things I should really think about? And then also just general expectations of what, what my loved one's going right. to, what's their living environment realistically going to be like? Okay. So um, I think the, the main thing is to go when you're, if you're going to move the, if the person into a facility, the children, which are usually the ones that are guiding the process, forget what you like. Think about where your parents are, your, where, they, where they come from. You know, do they, did they come from a very fancy environment? 
Um, if the answer is no, then don't focus on the fanciness of it. If there, if your love, if your mom is or your dad is a very fancy person and likes the glitter, then we need to go look at the glittery places. But let's pick the best glittery place that has the best um, care um, offerings and things like that. So a lot of times we try to get people just to peel back that onion and say, what is really important? And so, like you know, a lot of times, which Chris touched on, but I want to focus on. Many times the crisis is one spouse passes and the other one is left. And usually they, they're functioning when they're in their late 80s and 90s, they're functioning as one unit. Yeah. So when half the unit is gone, you're looking at someone either with dementia or someone who is completely almost, you know, immobile. And so if you have somebody with dementia, are they wandering? If they're wandering, we need to put them in a, in a closed facility, a secure facility. If not, if not a wanderer, then they can probably stay at home with home care, um, you know. But if they need 24-7, then you need to go look at, okay, you know, how much is that going to cost versus the facility. But keeping them in their home is always, you know, an ideal situation unless they need also high socialization. If they're, if they're highly social and they need to get out and about, then it's important to put them in a, in a community um, setting. So there's lots of things that go into consideration. Well, it sounds like in talking to you that there's some differences in the way you go about trying to help somebody locate the right assisted living facility versus a kind of a conglomerate that's uh, a corporation that's really all about referral fees and things like mm -hmm. that, not necessarily as personalized. It sounds like there's some things that you kind of take into consideration. You mentioned uh, that uh, maybe a if I just go online and try to search for assisted living, that uh, I might not find the right place. Well, a lot of people can't afford search engine optimization, so they're not going to even show up. And so there's a lot of companies on the Internet that you'll, let's say you're looking for a particular community and you type in that name. Well, that community may not have the most optimized search engines, and so um, a, a .com will show up and pretend like they're that facility, you call that number and you actually have just got sucked in to that company's internal system that, you know, you're, unbeknownst to you, you're not even talking to the community. But they've got your email address, your phone number, your name, your loved one's name, because they ask lots of questions. Is there a way that or questions that, that one should ask that would help them kind of discern where they've landed? Yeah, or even to know that yeah. when they've landed into that corporate vortex, um, yeah. how to how to basically untangle themselves or even how to avoid it in the first place. Um, I highly recommend not giving out your telephone and, and email address until you have fi found out who you're speaking to. Unless, you know, see, when we get, we, we are search engine optimized, and I would say maybe 20% of our calls are from the internet. And I spend a lot of time upfront educating them who they've called and what we do. Yeah, so are there some questions that I could ask that would drill down on, am I actually so talking you, yeah, to? Yeah, okay. The first question I would ask, where are you based? You know, where is your office based? And um, are, you, are you local? And a little bit about their, the company and how you work and how you're paid. And then also ask them, you know, will you come out and assess personally my mother or meet with me? Will you um, go with us to visit the places? Some companies don't allow their advisors to even leave their homes because they're just phone-based people. Okay. So they don't visit the facilities. They don't know the facilities. All they know is that someone has put in information into their you know, database that they can go look at and pretend or feel like they know the place, but they don't step foot in those places. And so, and, and they're recommending those places because they're part of that corporate organization. Exactly. I and they that. don't necessarily have agreements with everyone because a lot of the facilities have gotten tired of these dot coms and they're severing those relationships. And so, um, we're up front. We, we don't work with three communities in Atlanta because they feel that they can, you know, you know, self-feed, um, but what we do is contact them every time we have a family that we're working with. We tell the family about the place, and sometimes they'll say, you know, we our census is low. We'll work with you on this one case, and so we just we, we try to keep it very friendly, and we want to make sure our families are aware of them um, and know about those communities, but there's only three, and I can guarantee that our competitors can't say the same, the Internet competitors. Now, Chris, do you have anything to add to that as far as how to discern who you're speaking to or to whom you're speaking, and you know, questions to ask? 
Well, a lot of these uh, online dot com companies, as Maria is referring to, when you input information on what you're looking for, they spit out all that information you put into five or six or more companies, and then that's when all the calls and the email spam starts coming in there, and it can be overwhelming because you don't know if a good company got your information or a bad company got your information. So referrals are usually the best way to go, uh, but for those people who don't have a lot of friends anymore because they may have passed already, it's still a good starting spot. Point and you just have to wade through it. I mean, if you called my office, I, I got a, three pages of questions that people can ask companies when they're interviewing them uh, to help drill down who are the good quality companies. In Georgia, we've had a, a problem for many years. You got a lot of companies that uh, don't play by the rules. They hire independent contractors. Their, uh, their, their employees aren't covered by workers' comp. Uh, they're not getting properly screened, doing national criminal background checks and so on. So it, it, it can get real scary real quick. You know, I looked at my census uh, and 60% of my families that we were working with had been uh, with another type of service. Either they hired someone privately or they hired one of these other rogue type companies that weren't crossing their T's and dotting their I's. And there was abuse, there was theft, there was uh, failure to show, uh, you name it. So there's a lot of roadblocks and uh, bumps in the road if you don't do your research up front so you know ask questions this is a little discouraging well i you know i think that uh, that's one of the reasons why i'm glad we're talking about this to at least help for the folks that uh, do take the time to check out our show today hopefully they'll turn around and share it as well so that folks can have some good information where to go for real information that's not you know as you talked about kind of the the the, the fake storefront, if you will, that makes somebody believe that they're dealing straight with a facility when, in fact, that they're not. Um, and to, to give some advice on what to what to potentially ask, how do, how do you protect yourself or at least give yourself a greater measure of confidence that when you're dealing with, like, home care, for example, that the people coming into your home are not going to be making off with your either your medications, which is, I know, one of the common things that ends up walking out the door a lot of the times, but just that you're not dealing with someone who's got a criminal background, things like that. Yeah, so we, we recommend, you know, we're a licensure state, so any complaints logged against a company is uh, you can go to the Department of Community Health here and find out where those complaints are. You can go to the Better Business Bureau. Uh, you know, Live Home, we up front, when people inquire for the first time, we send them a copy of our state license. We send them a copy of our certificate of insurance. We send them a copy of our workers' compensation. Uh, they get an attestation that we have done a national criminal background check. We've done the drug test. We only hire certified individuals to provide the home care. We provide these documents up front because we don't want, you know, I just eliminate those, eliminate those questions on the get-go. I see. Some companies won't produce it. So, no, that's private business documents. We can't produce that. Mm -hmm. So that, that's a, a bit red of a flag. flag yeah. That's a red flag. Right. Saving some money there. And Blaine, uh, tell us a, a little bit about the, the way you're approaching the, the kind of the end of lifetime. Obviously, we're, uh, our other two experts have been helping us get some resources for a family member to uh, have some help in the home or help in a, in a facility, where, you know, a, like a, a, an assisted living center, for example. But uh, talk about how you're approaching this particular group and the needs that they have as it deals with end of life, which, you know, tends to be a tough time for a lot of families. Yeah, I think, um, so I'm a medical doctor by training. Um, actually, I was an orthopedic surgeon for several years. And um, I started dabbling in technology as, a, as an avenue to uh, improve uh, the healthcare experience um, in my own practice and, and with others. Um, I did a population health degree. Uh, we had, there's only two programs in the country. And one of my special projects was on end-of-life care and I had some, you know, personal experiences, which I can get into, but um, probably not perfectly relevant. That the result was that I found out that, you know, about 80% of all healthcare costs is consumed by just 20% of Americans. And of that 20% of Americans, 80% of them are in the last 18 months of life. And so when you look at that a little closer, what you realize is that um, much of the quality is missing. Um, and that uh, much of the care has uh, been delivered because patients didn't make wishes known. So families are obliged to make decisions for their loved ones when they're unable. And uh, that, that decision is um, essentially hopeful and anxious-driven and 
lots of challenges with with making a decision and ultimately um the family doesn't always get on the same page sure um there's particularly you know there's always somebody <laughs> that um that that wants to utilize this time period to dig up some dirt um and uh, or mom loved me better yeah mom, so that always almost always um child experiences are are brought to the table in a weird way so the um you know, the fact that you've never really had a true conversation about what you want for end-of-life care, uh, and you haven't really documented that in a in a way that's effective, um, leaves a lot of room for interpretation. And in fact, um, you know, it leaves a lot of room for just the loudest person in the room to make the decision. So even if there's a more competent person making the decision, if there's someone louder, the doctor's going to listen to the loud one because generally he's scared of being in a lawsuit so you know loud one sounds like he might take me to court um and that's i I hate to say it but that's generally the reason why we get um you know just unbelievable amounts of care uh fourth rounds of chemos and you know 30 percent of americans will have surgery in the last month your most likely day for surgery is your last um 54% 54% of cancer patients will still be on chemo within two weeks of their death. I mean, these are horrifying ideas to be, you, know, you wouldn't do this to um, a you pet. Would, yeah. You wouldn't do it to your pet. You wouldn't do it to yourself. And, and that's the issue. That's the point, really. And um, so making decisions actually is not that hard. And when you do them, you know, they can be really, you know, interesting environments. Great stories are told and um, intergenerational comments are made that, that are, um, quite laughable at times and quite interesting at others and certainly valuable to the healthcare industry as we move forward. So Vimti is basically a company that, um, saw the opportunity to improve the documentation. So the documentation today is done by typically a lawyer, um, which this is not a legal issue. It's a medical one at minimum. But really, at maximum, it's a human issue. It's not even a medical one. So um, we didn't feel like paper was, even though it's the standard today, I didn't think it was the right way to reflect on the topic. And so we do digital documentation, but we um, record the entire conference call with our counselors uh, to, um, to video. And what this allows us to do is to um, put the whole process into a simplified user experience. Um, you don't have to learn a lot before coming to us. You can just start up and we can talk about all the different issues. Some of our conference calls go on for several hours. <laughs> now, is advanced directive the term that we would use basically regardless of where we are or are there other terms for it that folks might need to be aware of um, besides the word advanced directive? I think, you know, advanced directive is the one that we typically talk about in the healthcare industry, but um, to the common public, we talk about living wills. Okay. Um, And to the physician community that really approaches this topic, they talk about the the movement towards what's called a pulse or a physician order for life-sustaining treatment. Uh, or a medical order for life-sustaining treatment, and and there's only a few states that have this, but but the those are the types of documents. The unfortunate thing is that all of the documents, apart from the physician order, that's an order by the by the physician, um, all the other documents are uh, there's no discussion about when they should go into effect. There's absolutely no discussion about how you want. They're basically check marks on on a piece of paper. Right. Yep. Do so not res- do not resuscitate. Do not, not intubate. That kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's no way to simplify this topic to check marks. It just doesn't work. <laughs> and because it doesn't work, they're 100% of the time non-binding and 100% of the time ignored. Uh, I've you know having worked in the hospital myself uh, years ago, uh, I saw this on several occasions where there is an advanced directive, but it, there, there are times where it's kind of gray. What, what about this particular situation? And like you said, it's rare. It's more often than not, they're going to proceed with some kind of measures rather than withhold them. More, more often than not, at least in my experience, that was the case. Um, and so it sounds like what you're doing by recording it as you are, um, 
there's some context behind why I want it this way. And, and you're also, from what I understand, you're including some of the family members that would kind of be key decision makers along the way as well, so that it's much more difficult when the time comes to actually now reverse course. Am I on yeah, I think, you know, reverse course is, is, is probably always on the table. Um, but I, th you know, we, we do, we do have bioethics lawyers that say that our, our process is binding, but I don't think that's the, the goal. Um, the goal is really to, to document your decisions as eloquently as possible, not with check marks, but with real words and real voice and real face and real, real everything. Uh, you know, the, um, the environment is so... Um, there's so many difficult decisions to make that it is, it's always the default setting is to do more. Mm -hmm. And um, just like organ donation today, if the default setting says, you know, you're an organ donor and you have to opt out, you get 90% of the population opting in. If you have the reverse, you'll have less than 10. So the default setting is really important. The, the American default system is to do more and to do more and to do more and to do more. And this does not bring quality life experiences. It brings you to multiple episodes of hospitalizations. Uh, new research has just been, uh, this, this last week actually, shows a large um, multi-regional uh, hospital system looking at uh, discharges uh, after hospitals. And disabilities actually accumulate relative to the acute stays, not anything else. So, it, you know, if you are comfortable and have good resources at the home, you're less likely to progress towards disability, number one. Uh, during this stage, you're likely to live 39% longer. You'll spend about 50% less. And your quality of care, both for the family and, and the loved one, uh, is likely to be about twice as good. So these are big numbers, and, and a lot of money is being um, allocated really unuseful ways, um, really 14 cents of every tax dollar and, um, you know, in the scope of over a trillion dollars is spent in this way. Well, context for most people that are listening is really going into a lawyer's office or, you know, filling out online forms, but it's always in paper. So kind of walk me through, is this an app? Is it a, like online experience? How is it done and how does it work? Yeah, great. Um, you're right. Um, the fact that it's done with a lawyer means that it's typically done uh, with a bunch of other documents that are put in a folder that says when I'm gone. <laughs> so um, by the mere fact that it's in that folder, it means it's not very valuable, right? Because um, it's supposed to be for decisions before. And do, <laughs> do your kids know where it is? Yeah, yeah. So about 50% of the time, it's never seen by anyone um, or until after, right? And, and then uh, about one in five chance it'll be available. You're supposed to like tack it to your fridge and stuff, which is probably not the <laughs> I don't know coolest. if that's good decorating. To yeah, it's just not. It's good just party conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Bob, I see yeah. your advanced directive here. Hey, I'm going to have a beer, but, you know. No, no, yeah. I, I advocate that every day. <laughs> <laughs> but the ambulance comes, and this is where they're supposed to look. So, um, you know, to do it right, that's what you do. Um, even then, it, it gets transferred, and like I said, it's, it's, it's ignored. Um, our, our process is basically... Uh, download the app. <laughs> you know, it's a, a you know, it's for the mobile phone or uh, any device like an iPad. And vimty dot com. That's right, vim vimty. It's really meant to uh, describe a strong community, vim and vigorous. Um, so, uh, and we believe we can help communities become stronger by making these decisions. That's really one of our core goals. All right. So you download the app, and then you what download happens? the app. You invite family members. Um, they join into your environment. It's like of a special network, uh, family fa family uh, network. Um, we validate your identity by going through a financial database just to double check, just like like when you apply for a loan. So it asks you funny questions like you know, what house you live in in 1984 and these kind of things. But um, uh, it's pretty quick. Uh, the The next step is to pick a counselor. We have chaplains on there. We have uh, hospice volunteers. We have patients who or caregivers who've been there, done that, and gotten a T-shirt. So we have people who really have, you know, been in the trenches and have done dealt with dementia at home. And, and um, they have a list of questions that we've created or uh, customized. There's only three questions we have to ask. So it can be really quick. It can be 10 minutes, but um, 
the important thing is that when they're over two hours, they're really great stories. And these become um, not just stories for decision making, but stories for um, posterity. Posterity. Um, we've seen them being used and, and shared um, for uh, for families to talk about obituaries in some sense. Um, and they kind of give uh, multiple generations in the family a, a context in which to feel like they understand the person, the grandma, the grandpa, that kind of thing. So it's kind of a fun thing to let – we have a family mode where the family members can ask the questions and – We've had it. Uh, we've we've trialed opportunities where it happens at like Thanksgiving, which is probably not the best time to do it. But everyone's there. Um, the point is, every time you get together, there should be some discussion about what you want. If you want to do it with Vimpty, we'll put it. We'll document it for you, and it'll be usable for the healthcare system, um, and it'll be usable for your family for many generations. And it's free, and it's paid for by insurance companies. We we work with insurance companies. Um, so we, we just wanted to find a pathway that was the least amount of friction or, or effort by the user as possible. And then you said it's on video. So I download the app, taken through these questions with the counselor, or we're asking each other, is it basically, am I FaceTiming my family or how's, how does that work? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Basically it's a HIPAA compliant, um, cloud storage. So as you're FaceTiming, all of that data, all that video footage is being stored, a lot of like YouTube, but stored into a, a HIPAA-compliant environment where uh, you can access it anytime and you can share it um, with loved ones. You get a nice special box that comes in the mail about two weeks later. It's got a magnetic enclosure and the directions are in the inside and you get a magnetic uh, um, uh, thing for your fridge instead of the paper. <laughs> um, you also get a wallet card and a sticker for the insurance card, and we integrate it into the HR electronic health records. So it's it's kind of the health system knows where to look for it, but you'll also have the pieces of, of the tools to to deal with it yourself. Importantly, we we uh, we we like to give um, um, some nice stationery that. Um, you can send to loved ones that maybe didn't participate. Swag. I yeah, like swag. It's who free needs free stuff. to think about getting this done? What's that? Who needs to think about getting this kind of uh, Well, our, market's, our market actually is anyone over 18. <laughs> um, I Better mean, to plan sooner than later, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, you can update it at any time, so there's really no downside to doing it now. I mean, if you got in a car wreck, you'd Want to have so this things kind of, like I want to be an organ donor. Here's why. Don't argue with me. That kind of thing. You can kind of get that in there. Yeah, I mean the, all the all the simple things and some of the difficult ones too. Um, like but, what? Well, like you know, what was it like growing up? Or um, you know, what do you, what do you want your legacy to be? Or um, what songs did you sing your children when you were growing up? And or you know, what do you remember from? Uh, what were your favorite songs? Your favorite restaurant? These, these kind of things are all kind of part of. Um, putting your life into perspective and sharing it with others, loved ones. When we talked the other day, you mentioned that the thing that you need for your organization, you're in that place where you're kind of looking for funding. That's one of the things that we want to do here for everybody is make sure we get out what, what you're looking for. You're in a phase where you're kind of looking for that next level of funding to take the, the company to the next level. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, from an investment perspective, I think we're a great investment. Yeah. <laughs> of course, I'm, I'm you know <laughs> quite partial to my own belief system, but... But the, you know, we, we've got a, a nice national contract with the largest nonprofit to the insurance payers called AHIP. They do prepaid plans. There's 1,300 health players in the country. I, I was astounded to realize that there was that many. Uh, I'm sure there'll be some consolidation in that market space. But for us, that's a, that's a big market to work with. Um, we've hacked the sales process considerably. Um, so we know... We know how to reach them. We know why we're reaching them. And we have the tools to um, bring about prepaid plans. Um, but our future looks different a year from now, even. Um, many of the conversations that were relevant to uh, the death panel issues that became a part of the Affordable Care Act uh, have been pulled out. But now reimbursement's now entering into the equation for having these conversations. So we're enabling our platform to be utilized by providers to uh, use our, our environment to get the job done. And we're also um, uh, you know, looking at other avenues to, to drive uh, the reimbursement model. So um, we're, 
we're now at a, a bit of $10 million valuation uh, based on seven uh, insurance payer contracts. And we're looking for a kind of a late seed stage or a Series A here soon. Gosh, I met you when it was back of the napkin. This is really well done. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So if you're listening and you're one of those companies that uh, can help with that, get tied in with them, VIMTY.com. Yeah, Blaine at VIMTY.com. All right. And, and uh, contact information for you, Chris and uh, Maria, before we had to jump off because our... We're down to our last seconds here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Live Home can be reached at uh, 770-992-5820. Or just Google Live Home Atlanta, and you'll have our sites come up. And that's L-I-V. L-I-V-H-O-M-E. Correct. And um, assisted living locators can be reached at 404-921-0064. And it's answered 24-7. And our website is assisted-living-atlanta.com. Well, thanks to all of our guests, Maria De La Guardia, Blaine Warkentine, and Chris Foster, experts on senior care. Thanks for sharing some excellent information. We burned up the hour faster than I can believe. It happens every week now. But uh, Diana, to uh, you and Sherwick, thanks for uh, being a part of it with us here. And uh, make sure you make an appointment to see us same time, same place next week. We'll see you then. This show is brought to you by Sherwick Media. Sherwick is the health and wellness solution, content that inspires change. Learn more at www.sherwick.com. That's sharewik.com. And link up with us on Facebook and Twitter.